everyone. Hello listeners, hello followers. This is episode 23 of Mentally Sounds Life in Lockdown podcast series. Uh, if you're listening to us on Spice FM, 98.8 FM, uh, we welcome your listenership. And of course, if you're listening on our social media platforms, we listen, we welcome you as, you as well. Um, a reminder of those platforms, uh, on Twitter, we're at underscore mentally sound, all one word, uh, mentally sound radio show on Facebook, and on Instagram, we're at mentally sound radio. So my name is Ricky Thamen. Uh, mentally sound is a mental health and mental well-being show, so as a disclaimer, we will be talking about uh, very graphic, sensitive issues to do with mental health and mental well-being. So as a disclaimer, that if you are feeling that you're needing help, please go out and get it, see your GP. Um, they are actually urging you to get out there because the services, of course, are still are running back again. Um, though, as I say, um, we're on Spice FM as well. A reminder, there was a recent schedule change. We were previously, in the very beginning, we were... I think it was uh, Monday at 1pm, then we changed to Tuesdays at 11am, but now we're on uh, Tuesdays at 1pm. Um, I think w- there might be a chance of a repeat. Um, we'll keep pushing Spice for that, uh, but it'd be great if we can. But, you know, Tuesdays 1pm is still a, a great slot to listen listen to us on. So this is episode 23. We've got a full hour um, episode this time, which is great for me, so I've got less editing to do. But we are going to cover a very important topic. Um, we're going to look at children's mental health and, and the whole issue regarding them going back to school and how they must be feeling. We'll also be touching upon the, the recent sort of student situation as it's very local up here. You know, there was a recent outbreak at Northumbria University and a lot of students are self-isolating. And this, of course, back on the back end of the summer of the exams, chaos and so on. So we'll be touching on that. But But, but initially, it is looking at children's and children's mental health regarding going back to school and of course the whole lockdown experience for them as well so as ever we're joined by our star therapist nikki robertson hello nikki you're right good how are you and uh, not too bad and we've got brought back one of your colleagues who shares your well-being hub this is uh ruth whiteside ruth was earlier on talking what was the topic again ruth remind me uh, we were talking about uh, trauma i believe that's yeah. right yeah trauma yes. and domestic abuse and the whole issue of grief yeah that was a particularly good that one yeah so welcome back again. Do you want to remind listen? Do you want to tell listeners about your own particular practice and what what particular you know your what you represent? Okay, thank you. Um, yes, so I I am part of an organisation called Children's Emotional Language and Thinking. So as ever with this topic they're about to cover now, this is right up your street, isn't it? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I could talk for hours. Don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I leave? <laughs> well, hey, you know, in you know, in the near future, we can do an unedited podcast where you can talk as long as you like, if needed be. You know, <laughs> brilliant. Um, so of course, um, you know, when we look at the whole lockdown experience, uh, just a reminder for listeners that life in lockdown was a podcast series that, that an idea that Nikki and myself uh, thought that we'd do to help people out there, and I thought I think children's mental health. Um, particularly in the beginning of lockdown when they weren't attending schools and how it has affected their mental well-being was was uh, much that myself and Nikki covered. Um, but now that they're back at school, all, of course, albeit in a very kind of uh, rickety kind of way, you know, some some are, I think most are, but I do know of, of, of colleagues that I know who, who are shielding and therefore kids can't go back to school. I know that more parents are, are home learning and all that stuff. So, um Nikki, do you want to start us off in in um, what sort of feedback, what sort of um, 
from colleagues, clients in terms of kids going back to school and lockdown, how they've how they've approached it and how they've been adapting to this sort of new normal? So I'm just going to give you some very generalised feedback. Initially, you know, obviously everyone was quite stressed out and, and trying to adapt to the homeschooling, working from home. Um, and I think the feedback from the parents who were furloughed is that they definitely noticed that there was an improved quality of, of life. Yeah. You know, suddenly they had improved quality of um, family, you know, that really increased. Um, but it was trying to adapt to teaching children Mm-hmm. from home which you know none of the parents had the skill set for that and what ultimately resulted in because there was no routine anymore parents had to try and create this routine and were starting to create quite a bit of um, irritation you mm-hmm. know emotions were flaring at home and a lot of parents were just finding that they were becoming grisly you know we, we have one parent calling themselves Hulk parent <laughs> you know, um, angry, angry mom or frustrated dad. And, you know, there's lots of shouting, which that is not helpful because obviously the parents are having to face into adapting to the change, face into navigating themselves through the fear that they're feeling, you know, concerns if we think back in those early days. But then the child is trying to adapt to this new structure, trying to self-motivate or self-discipline themselves and having their parents suddenly as the person who, is enforcing them, mm. but a whole, you know, suddenly everyone's cramped up together, whereas there was no reprieve from anyone. Yeah. Um, so what happened there is a lot of parents just took a step back and thought, well, for my sanity, for my child's sanity, I'm going to step out of this and I'm going to just not do any homeschooling and so be it. And quite a lot of parents actually took that on. Right. We see a range through the children. Um, and we're talking here more like 10 years old and up, where they obviously were quite resistant in the beginning to the whole environment, and then they started to settle into it. Um, you know, they found ways to adapt. They, their social life went through screens, and this was our first podcast. We spoke about exactly how children were adapting. Mm-hmm. You know, they had to socialize through screens, and they were lucky because they could actually socialize through screens. Yeah. But the lack of routine and the lack of getting up and going, you know, the lack of change of scenery became a bit of a brain dull for them you know what I mean life yeah. became monotonous moods became low um, and obviously navigating what was they were seeing through social media you know the news input mm-hmm. parents talking parents concerns yeah. that started to create a lot of anxiety mm. then one one thing that was quite interesting which actually I had not even factored in was the young children so um, some of the parents I spoke to had young children, you know, like a year, 18 months, two months yeah. old, three months. And, you know, these children, their whole social engagement is going through to, you know, soft plays and meeting mm. up with other children and going to these baby play groups and things. But that also keeps it keeps them routine and it keeps them socially interactive and yeah. helps develop them socially and, and it also with the parents, there's a little bit of a break on how, you know, there's that routine which helps the parents and helps the child. Mm. And some of the feedback from, from some of the parents is that the children's nature started to change because they didn't have that social interaction. And unlike some of the older children who the situation could be explained to, these young children didn't have the vocabulary and they didn't have the understanding of what was yeah. going on. So suddenly their norm was ripped out from them or away from them without mm. this understanding. 
Yeah. And they didn't have places to vent off their steam. Not everyone has a house with a garden or not everyone lives in a place. Some people are living in flats. They don't have the ability to yeah. take their children out and things like that. So suddenly these children have this pent-up energy, not sleeping well. Mm. You know, and this creates a, a vicious cycle because they're not sleeping well at night, parents aren't sleeping well, and this was impacting mental health. So really interesting, like a mixed bag, a mixed bag of emotion. Mm. Um, what we are seeing now is with children going back, yeah. um, particularly the older children who had developed this um, self-discipline at home and who managed to get their schoolwork done and, and found their social interaction through um you know, so um, their gadgets, suddenly they're in school now trying to adapt to this new school environment, which isn't fun anymore for them. Mm. You know, being in these long classroom days, which isn't fun for them anymore. Mm. But they're also now engaging with the kids, which were creating a lot of anxiety for them before. So not only have the children had to deal with this whole change, but on some level there was, you know, they were taken away from, Maybe the kids who are bullying them or, do you know what I mean? You know, this is what happens at school. And now Mm. suddenly they're back in this environment. Mm. Teachers are, you know, there's feedback that teachers are far more stressed. Mm -hmm. That's rubbing off on the children. So it's almost like a bit of a pressure cooker. Because children aren't wanting to go into school because, hey-ho, they could do their school at home before. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to interact with the kids that they didn't like. Or the kids which were antagonistic. They didn't have this stressy teacher and i've got my you know inverted commas here you know Mm -hmm. they didn't have the stressy teacher to deal with so there was just themselves in their room dealing with probably their parents but by six months down the line they've numbed out their parents anyway (laughs) they've figured out a way to cope with their parents Mm -hmm. so that's that's the nutshell version of just a broad range of interaction yeah um, before I ask Ruth to expand on that and with, with her experience from, from her kind of clientele, uh, I, I found an interesting point you made, Nikki, about uh, younger children especially, because I, I was thinking that of those that hadn't had much experience of schooling before, would their adaptation to this new normal be a lot easier because they've not had a, a previous normal to get used to? Just, do you understand what I'm meaning there? Yeah, interesting. Um, possibly. Mm possibly um you know there's no evidence that there is Mm -hmm. um but i think something to factor in is that the environment that they've been in in the last six months has created a change in their nature anyway you know what i mean everyone is reacting to the changes in the environment very differently to how they would Mm -hmm. so the assumption would be made on a pre-covid change does that make sense So we are taking that from our pre-COVID brains and looking at that question saying, yeah, possibly because they never had that experience before, we would assume that this would feel normal for them. Mm -hmm. But we don't know how they've actually responded, changed, what impact it has had on them. Mm -hmm. So I I can't really answer the question other than... Just a, it's just an assumption. That yeah, it's it's sort of a, and it's going to be more of a normal to them as opposed to new normal because yeah. th- their leap isn't as going to be as big as what the other kids yeah. are. If you see what I mean, yeah. Um, Ruth, what about yourself? Um, um, what what kind of feedback and experiences have you had from 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 parents and dealing with their kids going back to school at this particular time? 
It's been quite mixed. I think what's really interesting to me is that those kids who are reasonably secure at home have got a secure attachment to their families and carers, those kids who have access to all the digital stuff and you know parents who will sit down with them to draw or read or play games those mm. are the kids who have coped much better i think going back to school because mm-hmm. they've kind of looked forward to going back to school and are, are back in the swing of things they're mm-hmm. seeing their friends and, and i am also thinking particularly of younger children at this point yeah whereas i think those kids who have struggled and um, struggle to access any learning at home for whatever reason those kids who perhaps don't have great secure attachment and mm-hmm. um, relationships they i think they're probably the children from from certainly from my colleagues are the children who are more anxious having gone back to school because although school is maybe seen as the safe space because yeah. they have access to everything they need at school. Actually, because of their insecure attachment, they really they need or they're missing being at home with the family. Yeah. So it's a kind of a, a double whammy for them, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a key point as well, as I was listening to Nikki there, is that um, that there's there's a, a chunk of children missing from school at the moment, and those mm-hmm. are special educational needs children. Yeah. And that's been, you know, that, that's around a whole range of different issues. But one of them is because um, some schools are struggling to maintain all the rigorous um, hygiene policies and yeah. bubbles and all the rest of it for those children with special educational needs. So for kids who are extremely reactive, so children with ADHD, mm. perhaps children who are you know, re, um, who, who have autism. Uh, children who have immunosuppressed um, conditions, mm. which means that they are likely to pick up, you know, the, the, the slightest bug at the drop of a hat. Mm. Those are all kids that, you know, are either not able to go back into school yeah. or are um, unable to go back to school because of their um, ability to cope. I mean, I, I don't know personally. I, 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 I'm wondering if you have an insight, Ruth, because I'm wondering that those those special schools that deal with kids with with special needs you know learning disabilities and and the other conditions you outlined that some of those schools aren't built to 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 have more to adequate more sort of incorporate sort of means to increase to encourage more social distancing is it must mean a lot harder for them absolutely so what what yeah. what have they had to do have you had any sort of well, I think, you know, I think that there's a certain amount of, um, it's, it's going back to that whole disclaimer idea, you know, that there are some kids yeah. who need such specialist and intimate care yeah. that they either, they either go to school or they don't. You know, if they do go to school, then um, that will be probably because they, they, they haven't got any underlying conditions around yeah. suppressed immune systems. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, social distancing in, in, especially, you know, in a special school or in a school with kids with complex needs you, mm. you can't you just can't do social distancing yeah. so again you know it, not only for the child but for the wider family and mm. for the staff it's a much 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 more complex picture and yeah. going back into mental health this this group of children with special needs would already be predisposed to higher risk of mental health conditions anyway yeah, yeah. which means currently them and all their family members mm are at greater risk of suffering mm-hmm. um, mental health if they're not already, you know, yeah. currently suffering from mental health yeah. um, due to the pandemic. Uh-huh. So regarding um, um, the whole experience of uh, the kids' experience of lockdown, you know, 
um, you know, this year, I imagine a lot of kids growing up will certainly remember 2020 as, as you know, as we will, <laughs> undoubtedly. And and something we've talked before, Nikki, about the uh, the way that um, kids can very, um, they're very good at and very cleverly good at sort of um, journaling their experiences through 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 diary entries or art. Um, I was just wondering that. Um, I think you had it listed in your criteria questions about their experience of lockdown. So, has that been the hub of it all about about them just trying to find a way of means of expressing themselves, kind of harnessing all this sort of energy, whether it be negative energy, as you say, they could be living in households which might not be good for them if they're witness to you know abuse and all that sort of thing. So, um, what are the sort of the things that they've had to do to put them in good stead? So when they're back at school, they can sort of, you know, go forward with that, if that makes sense. That was actually one of the feedback um, I got from some of the parents when I reached out and, you know, spoke to some parents, is that they would love to be able to see that kids, there was more time made in schools. Mm. And I'm sure, Ruth, you will absolutely agree with this, yes. um, being in that industry, mm. is that it would be amazing for the schools to be able to communicate or put time aside yeah. Um, the kids can just start to articulate how they're feeling mm. um, and just go through exercises of tapping into their emotions, communicating their emotions so that every kid in the classroom sees actually, you know what, the popular girl or the popular boy who seems to have everything going and seems to be okay, actually they're also struggling a little bit. So it's, they start yeah. to recognize, wow, it's, it's about compassion. We talk about this in our mindfulness all the time, mm. you know, this compassion where you start to recognize that everyone's actually suffering a, a little bit so it builds it builds um empathy within the structure so how amazing if we have children who are far more empathetic towards each other and themselves yeah. far more self-compassionate and ruth i imagine that this is something you would yeah. encourage you would encourage your kids that you work with to express themselves oh. in such such a manner it's it's such a huge arena um i think the issue that we've got in schools and, and this is particularly true of england and wales but mm. we we are focused very much on performativity mm. so we look at results of key stage two sats we look at key stage one sats and phonics and all the rest of it and whilst in some schools with some teachers who are very skilled at um as kind of getting kids ready for tests without freaking children out and saying, today we're going to do yet another practice test. Are you saying, are you saying, I'm sorry to interrupt, are you saying, Ruth, that there's a certain amount of competitiveness which is which is unhealthy there, that, that, that it could I, do that? Yes, I mean, personally, it's, it's not so much competitiveness between schools, but, you know, schools are, you know, that they will be, they'll have offset coming in, mm. they'll have the local authority breathing down the neck if they don't get the results that they should get, yeah. whatever that should is, okay? Yeah. And so it means that there's very little, potentially, little time for schools to concentrate on doing stuff that's around emotional intelligence, that focuses all on academic stuff. Yeah. And actually, we know that if you, are, if you have a high emotional intelligence, that you will be much better equipped as, as, you, as you move towards adulthood. You'll be much more successful economically. You'll be mm. much more successful in terms of your relationships. Mm. You'll have a much better handle on, on who you are and, and what you're about. Yeah. Whereas if you don't put that time and effort into kids and, and developing their EQ, then actually they're churning out kind of um, almost like you know exam fodder almost with kids who who are struggling because they can't articulate how they're feeling because we have a continuum of happy, mad, bad, sad. Yeah. <laughs> 
and we don't, you know, we rarely talk about the, the intensity of those feelings mm. and, and all, you know, all the other hundreds and thousands of feelings that, that you can have. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot for schools. I feel that there's a lot that schools could do to develop this further. Yeah. And it takes a brave head teacher to say, actually, I'm going to put the brake, the accelerator, uh, put the brake on mm. performativity. I'm actually going to get my kids mm. to start to think more, um, you know, with their emotions more. There yeah. are schools around who do it, but but you know, it, it, it's it takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of bravery on, on the part of the head. Yeah. So you know, we've seen this in organisations. Some mm. organisations have started to focus on creating emotionally intelligent workforce mm. and you can see the productivity and the workforce the cohesion in the workforce the productivity the happiness you know you've got healthier adults happier adults so why not start it at roots level and start creating healthy happy emotionally intelligent children mm -hmm. because that's only going to support our future so i'm just going to give you some stats quickly on some of the children's mental health which support what we're seeing so between the age of five and 10 years, we have an equal split in male and female. So in terms mm -hmm. of gender and, and mental health. Yeah. By the time we, are, we reach 17, mm -hmm. that has doubled in men. Right. So the young adult male, the mental health conditions have doubled. We see a higher rating mm -hmm. in men. And most mental health conditions would have set in. So half of your mental health conditions would have set in before 14 years old. Right. Okay, that's a scary thought. Yeah. And then by the time the adult is 24 years old, mm -hmm. this would have increased by 75%. Gosh. Okay, 24. Mm -hmm. They're only hitting the real world at 24, mm -hmm. depending on what career path they chose, you know, university mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and just talking, just going into that now, talking about university, you know, um, Kids who just finished their, their qualifications, wanting to go into this, into the world, excited, full of ideas, full of ambition, full of goals. You know, now they're facing into recessions. And but we're looking at this twenty-four-year-old age group now, who's trying to break into the world, trying to secure a job for themselves, become financially independent, mm. and become, you know, these adults that they've always dreamed about becoming. Yeah. At a time like this, mm. where opportunities, you know, are quite low for them, mm. so that mental health statistic, no one's, there's no research on it. I couldn't find any research currently on it because it's just so new. Mm -hmm. You can only just, I, I can only imagine that it's at least increased by, I don't know, my guess, 10 percent, 15 percent. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really interesting about that statistic is because um, I use that in my training all the time because yeah. I work with um, teachers and health professionals, the police, and I look at adversity in childhood particularly, and one of those adversities is mental health. And I think when, when you link it to the neuroscience and neurobiology, that's when you start to be, that's when you start to see the bigger picture. And, you know, if, if you think... If, if we think in the simplest of terms, why do we behave as we do? That tends to be uh, the accumulation of years and years and years of doing what we've always done. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's very established in the world pathways, mm -hmm. which means that for those young people who are experiencing mental health issues, yeah. the longer those mental health issues go on, the more established those neural pathways get. So that by the time these kids get into the age of 24 or so, yeah. those mental health problems are 
very, very entrenched. Mm-hmm. And so it requires a huge amount of intervention and, and self, um, self-help to, yeah. to kind of change those neural patterns. Whereas if we had that, um, so that if we change the curriculum in school, so that right from early years we were looking at brain science yeah. being, being, you know, teaching according to neuroscience, then actually I think that we would probably stave off a phenomenal number, a huge percentage of these mental health problems in young people Mm. because they would be equipped with optimism, motivation, resilience, (laughs) hope and yeah, and a desire to move forwards with their life and excited and anticipating, you know, great things. But Mm. at the moment we don't really have that. Mm. Also just to support what we're saying there is that if we look at nature and we look at the species who have become extinct. You know, mm-hmm. studies on those species who have become extinct show that they are species that haven't been able to adapt to the ecological changes which have happened in nature. Right. Ultimately, we are a species as well. Yeah. Um, that is slotted into the same education system. How many years? 100 years? Oh, 150 years? Yes. Yeah. 150 200 years yeah yeah so it's the same system for 150 to 200 years why has this not changed when you have had so much advancement in everything in life look at the advancements within ourselves you know um Mm -hmm. just in terms of how much um, more eq we have and Mm -hmm. just awareness we have why are we still being buttonholed into Mm -hmm. the same hole you know, a couple of centuries old. Mm. It has to change. Mm. And there is a new breed of individuals which have come out post-COVID. We, we're not the same people who went into this before. Yeah. We have to change. Every Everyone's had to adapt their way of work. Look how everyone's, mm. you know, suddenly online. This is online. <laughs> well, I, I, I've always think, and, and I've been doing a lot of this sort of thinking over the last few days, because of t- today, uh, you know, a major cinema chain have announced that they're going to close all their, um, their, their cinemas because, you know, the, the films aren't coming out. So what's the... And I, I just feel that there's going to be a lot of um, default buttons that are going to be pressed that you know if we if we lose in industries that they're gonna have to adapt you know with you know I, I i'm fearful about a lot of the you know ruth and i were talking about a particular venue that we both like in the east end of newcastle we hope that the those kind of smaller independent venues survive and so on and so on but yeah it, it is about adapting to the new normal and do you think there's an extra pressure therefore on on youngsters that they that they're the ones, in a way, are going to have to present present the, the you know the new ideas of how we 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 stride forward. I also relate to the fact uh, on that as well. Something you know you're talking about nature there, Nikki. That because of course the other thing is uh, eco anxiety is something we talked about with with another guest I had uh, on on the podcast. That um um because before we you know we had the, you know extinction rebellion and and this sort of um almost like a doomsday forecast about. If we don't make the changes now, we won't have the future to embrace more. Particularly now in a post-COVID world, I mean, it's just going to be a lot of, you know, it's <laughs> we're going to have to put a lot of decisions. Organisations have had to make furloughing yeah. staff and things just to ensure the survivability of the organisation. So, yeah, yeah, we we are going to have to make um, tough decisions. Everyone has to make tough decisions, either for themselves, mm. you know, or for the organisations. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to your question, you know, you're talking about is it tougher for um, for the younger generation? And 
I think about the younger generation. Um, you know, I remember when I was that age, you know, my teenage years or my early 20s, life was like you had these fantasies. It was, it was idealistic. You know what I mean? You were just full of dreams. We thought um, we thought we had all the answers, didn't we? And we were yes. going to we were going we to change the world. And yeah. God forbid, if our parents even tried to tell us something, what did they yeah. know? Yeah. They were yeah. just old, yeah. and they knew yeah. nothing about life. So we were so yeah. idealistic, full of hope, as you yeah. said, right? Yeah. But then, as we kind of settle into the realization of what the world's really about, and we kind of settle into the rum drum, what's it called? Rum drum, hum drum of life. Mm-hmm. Um, then we start to become quite jaded. Yeah. So I still believe that this younger generation who is facing into this, you know, we're we're probably more at the jaded stage of life, you know, and and because we're also jaded, I think we have more resilience. Mm-hmm. We're a little bit more resilient. Do you yeah. agree? Yeah, I guess I think yeah, because it doesn't really matter what what is bringing on that sense of. You know, feeling jaded actually just the mere fact that yeah. we've been on this planet for you know, a substantial seen... number of years means that you've got some 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 accumulated wisdom and, and experience. And, yeah, and we've had knockbacks in life. Yeah, yeah, and you've had mm-hmm. knockbacks in life. By the time you get to, you know, your your thirties, mid thirties, forties, and up, you've had knockbacks mm-hmm. in life. So you've had to kind of navigate through that and start to become resilient. Whereas you know, the and, and I'm talking about, let's say, 16 to late 20s, that younger generation, that youth at that age, they possibly haven't had that, you know. Um, they're still full of ideas and, and, and like they're just going to go out there and just eat life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, may, maybe, maybe we'll see kind of the flip side happening, that actually, you know, after a few more months of this, Living off a lockdown, but actually, pigs will start to be really creative about how they how they do move forward. And I'm yeah. thinking about yeah. you know a friend of mine, and she took a daughter to Newcastle University this weekend and dropped her off, and, and the empty nest syndrome and all the rest. And meanwhile, poor poor Rosa, so he's a shout out for Rosa. But mm-hmm. you know, she is now in a position where she she is in this really weird university time where they should have everything open to them and of course they haven't mm-hmm. but i i wonder if this then gives rise to, to something called post-adversarial growth where actually you start to begin to look for creative ways of climbing out of this horrible mm-hmm. pit of despair now again i think that depends on context on where you're living on on your background on you know, your level of education, because I think there's many kids out there who would struggle with what I'm talking about, to be honest, mm. because actually they have, they've always struggled. Mm. And that will, that will be, for, for lots of reasons, adversity being one of them. Mm. So it really is, I think, on, you know, we, we've got to get kids who are feeling energised and creative about changing systems, but also they've got to, as adults and, and those young people have got to then pull everybody else along with them. So it may be an opportunity to develop and grow further. We, it's upon us as well, wouldn't you agree, that to provide them the tools to, to enable them to do that, to, to give them all the kind of room necessary because, you know, absolutely. they're going to, you know, we're going to hand them the keys, aren't we? Yeah, to... Absolutely. You see, this is my argument about emotional intelligence. If, 
know, the keys, it starts with the emotional intelligence. You know, yeah. and, you know and, and if we can unlock people's EQ, yeah. then we end up with, you know, with tomorrow's generation, tomorrow's workers and, and, and leaders and teachers and all the rest of this. And actually that, that is a very empowering thing. And if we could do that, then actually these young kids would be would be more than equipped to go out there and live their life and and, and find meaning and relevance. Yeah, I mean, I I find uh, you know there's two words that come to mind. So you know we we mentioned before the the adapting and also diversifying. And the the, the examples in my own personal case was when um you know I I have an activist background. So some some listeners might know that um. I used to wake up at like uh, at six in the morning and, and me and a few activists would go down to this armaments company that was down um, not too not too far away from my am, from where I am down the banks of the River Tyne. And we would say to and this was in like the middle of the, the credit crunch, uh, the financial crash back in 2008. And it's not so much that we of course, we again, relating back to the point, we, we thought we knew it all then we wanted to change the world for the better. But because of the situation, and of course it's a very similar situation now, we didn't want people to lose their jobs, but we knew that those sorts of contracts were were not were not going to be long lasting. So we were saying, encouraging them to, um, you know, diversify, you know, make diversify your skills for good, you know, look at green green vehicles and 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 that sort of thing, you know, which is something with sustainability and long long lasting. And the funny thing is, whilst they didn't really listen to us back then, that very same company, along with hundreds of other companies, possibly thousands, um, when it came to PPE, everyone stepped up, and they were applying their skills workforce that they were might make they might be making something completely different, but they used their extra time, their workforce to to step up because everyone was like you know. Um, supporting each other, helping our, our NHS, our carers, and I just thought it was wonderful to see, and that, and that in a way for me gave me a glimpse of what we can do when we're under the cosh. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree on that? So yeah, definitely, and I think what what to me is really interesting. The example you gave, you know, is an, is an arms and an arm like an armament place. Mm. I think politically and contextually, it, 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 that has a real bearing on things. COVID affects everybody to yeah. some degree or another. Yeah. So everybody understands. The but it has exposed the inequalities yes. out there, hasn't it? Yeah. Of course it does, absolutely. So, and I think yeah. they're going to be even more exposed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So inequality is going to become more and more apparent mm. now. Mm. I think we're only just the cusp of it. Yeah. yeah. I, think, um, I mean, I, I, I'll give you another example. So um, a, lot of my, a lot of my friends, a few of them who are social workers, um, still tend to communities over in County Durham. Of course, we know the history of County Durham, a, a big mining area along with other counties in the country. But what happened to them in the 80s, a sort of decimation, um, a lot of those problems still haven't been healed. So, um, And of course, when you take out, if you, if you use the example of the mine, it's like kind of the nucleus of those communities. When you take out the nucleus, it, it, it's like, a, you know, it, the community kind of falls like a deck of cards and everything else suffers. And a lot of those communities, even even thirty, forty years on, still haven't healed. And and uh, the the I think from what I understand, um, the the unfortunate suicide rates of young men. You know, we talked about mental health of young men, in amongst sort of those areas, uh, is 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 quite high. I think the highest amongst the, in the region. So it just goes to show that that uh, you know we talked about industries falling before. That we're going to have to be absolutely on our guard to make sure that these sorts of repercussions 
don't 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 happen that we can sort of step in and and hopefully governments can 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 have bring in the safeguarding in because 30 40 years ago they absolutely didn't do that you know i think one of one of the key things about the heavy industry is is that it was that was back in a, a day a time when roles were very kind of divided and the men went out to work and the women stayed at home and yeah. had kids yeah. you know obviously that's a massive generalization that's <laughs> what is the really? but, but I mean, that, that's kind of particularly in in heavy industry areas yeah, we yeah. wouldn't have got it so much in, in london's you know london streets and things but certainly up in the northeast or northwest yeah where you had heavy industry you had very traditional types of work so those men who are now out of work or have been out of work for that long Mm-hmm. That is a hell of a long time to be stuck in in the in that kind of situation of now being jobless yeah. and finding that women are going out to work and doing all the you know caring jobs and shop work and all the rest of it and that still happens. I mean, I lived in Chopwell for about thirteen years and that's an excess mining village. Yeah, and the you know the that broken spirit is the, is all I can say really. And and you know there were lots there's lots of great things about Chopwell, but it's you know, you, you feel it, but it's very much mm-hmm. um, an ex-mining village. And, and back in the 70s, it was classed as a Category D village yeah. um, by, by the government, which meant that there was no infrastructure, mm-hmm. nothing happening for that village. And, and it's struggled ever since. Yeah. Think, this is a community. <laughs> the heart's been yeah. ripped out of it. What, what can we do to support... Um, I mean, in a way, of- in a way, it, didn't ma- it doesn't really matter what you think politically. I mean, even yeah. if... Even if um, Back back in that day, that, that that if you felt that that particular heavy industry had no future and had to be sized down, um, okay, you know, uh, I, I I sort of agree to some extent, but because those communities were heavily dependent on that very thing, why the safeguarding wasn't put in there has led to the problems that we've we've had, and and I feel that yeah. as we enter this new era, that's absolutely something we sh- we have to imperatively take care of yeah because we, we, we because these are the lessons of the past we've seen what can happen and we've recently and seen it in the steel yeah. industry as well haven't yeah. we in the region exactly and you think about you know um you know i was a teacher for a long time in school in um in Elswick in newcastle so you know mm. the, the, the shared history there of the old um shipyards and things yeah, shipyards, yeah. still hasn't recovered from no, that. no that's another example that yeah yeah decades ago so what are we going to do differently this time and I, I, it worries me that, you know, without a bit more EQ and a bit more mm. mindfulness and a bit more understanding, self-compassion, compassion for others, that we're just going to make the same old mistakes. Yeah. Mm. So history has shown us yes, that. absolutely. Yeah. You know, you mentioned history there and relates back to, to, you know, our overall topic about schooling. I mean, we have a very selective learning of history, don't we, in schools at the moment? And I just think now is as good a time as ever to 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 learn from our past especially the sort of re- more recent past to what what did happen especially up in our region but um we're, we're almost we're almost uh we're heading towards the end i was you know so if we just i just want to make one one more point sort of reversing back to the to the uh kids experiences of lockdown um because it, it, it reminded me of um, I went. I went to a few seminars with the VSO, the volunteer organisations, and the kind of things they're doing abroad. And I remember on my visit, on a visit to India back in to beginning of two thousand five. It wasn't long after the, if you remember the Asian tsunami. And uh, I remember that there were groups out there who were using things like art therapy because what they'd seen was incredibly traumatic. And we also talked to a couple of groups who work with kids around the Grenfell community who, of course, had to deal with the trauma of the 
you know the the the, flower, the the big fire that happened there. Is there something similar to be said here? I mean, I I'm quite biased because I'm I'm from a creative background, so I've been you know things like art therapy and and is that something that you use there, Ruth, um, it to 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 make kids it's, express themselves? Yeah. It's not something I use, but I've I've seen it used in schools and things like therapy as well. Um, mm -hmm. There's lots of opportunities if schools are willing to grab that, grab those opportunities and, 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 and just change the dynamic of what they do. You know, there's this huge kind of debate going on at the moment. We've got to get kids to catch up with what they've missed. Well, no, we haven't. No, you don't. <laughs> let's, no, you don't. let's get them to a place of psychological safety so yeah. they are able to learn. And, and, and by getting them to a place of psychological safety, yes, we're kind of looking at those kids who have, you know, really experienced quite a lot of adversity during COVID, but, but yeah. everybody benefits from, from that. I think I give the safety. example, um, I think I mentioned it to you, Nikki, that there was a, well, it might have been the same one you were on, Ruth, that there was a, I think there was a particular school in Middlesbrough where I think 40 pupils had experienced bereavement through, through COVID. Um, I think it was during the grief um, Yeah, that's right. And that, well, that, I, I, I've, I've got you know a, a statistic that always astounds me every time I, I trot it out in my training. And I was talking to somebody involved in the youth justice system the other day, and and, and she said yes. She said you know that is absolutely true. Um, and it's that forty one percent of any young person in our young um, in our in our youth justice system will mm -hmm. have been bereaved of a parent or a carer or a sibling when still young children yeah. and you know when you think 41 percent that is huge massive that's not coincidental what are we doing in this country with those kids who who are bereaved how yeah. do we get them to a place where actually they're not going to become that 41 percent i mean that's yeah. nearly half of our youth justice i mean do you know ruth um are you aware of any stats that 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 um about uh, schools employing things, people like counsellors is. I mean, I, 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 from my own experience, when I had my own tra trauma in my teenage years, I mean, we didn't have anything like that in high school. And I remember the then victim support group. It's sort of victims first now in the region, but the then victim support. I mean, I, I, I was on a when I when I survived my own particular trauma. I, I guess I was kind of like you know when I had my peers and other people kind of like. I wouldn't say congratulating, but but kind of saying well done for getting through it. I felt sort of empowered. So when victim support approached me, I I kind of rejected it. I was like, I don't need this. But because since from what I learned about trauma and PTSD, anxiety, that these things lay dormant, and it it's sort of like got started getting to me a lot later on to the point where I regretted not talking to victim support. So. So would it be? I'm imagining it would be a good idea for for schools to sort of employ a sort of a uh, almost victim support like service there for 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 people for kids yeah, that do need it. Certainly, I mean, schools these days are so much better at doing that. They're, they're, most schools that I've worked in um, or had experience of have had some degree of counsellor super mm. or, or supervision um, yeah. at time for the kids. Nowhere near enough. But that's yeah. because of the cost. Yeah. So I've got something to support what Ruth said. I Go found ahead. some um, studies. Um, so public health funding, mm -hmm. um, which is funding for school nurses, um, public mental health services, has been reduced by 600 million from the year 2015-16 mm -hmm. to 2019-20. 
So more than 338,000 children are referred to CAMS yeah. in 2017. Only one third received treatment. Mm -hmm. okay? mm -hmm. And in March, when they did a study on children's mental health, yeah. you know, because of COVID, it had mm -hmm. increased by 83%. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't add up. No. You've got your services mm. for children's mental health being cut by 600 million. Yeah. It has increased, and that was in the beginning of March. I don't see that number decreasing mm. as this is progressing. I mean, we, we, we could do another podcast just on the, the, the yes, service, on the, on the service <laughs> cuts, <laughs> the service cuts that we've had to endure, especially up in the north, which I think we, we had more. Yeah. But um, I think this is why we wanted to do this one yeah, again, because absolutely. Ruth and I are so passionate about. Yeah. Um, like, if you just look at that, and there's just huge big gaping holes. I mean, they've suggested that there's 40,000 to 60,000 children who will not receive mm. um, support this year alone. Yeah. And the waiting list yeah. it, um, is over 100, it's 100 to 200 days. And this is critical. Yeah. Well, even pre-COVID, um, even with our with our radio shows, um, I think, I think Nikki, you, you partook in some of them in which we, yeah. we talked about um, the kind of issues that the kids, the children at schools were going through, things like the the tsunami of social media the, the, that yeah. they've had to sort of grasp upon, all the, the exam reforms. And, and to, to think, to put COVID on top of that, I mean, God, it's a sort of triple whammy in, in terms of like yeah. just a few, a cluster few number of years. As I say, we're heading towards the final few minutes and we touched up upon the the, the issue of students and of course um, listeners are well aware that we've had a big outbreak in one of our major um, uh, universities up here in Northumbria where there's like over 700 uh, students have been found to be infected um, a lot of them are now self-isolating if any of them are listening right now I mean our, our hearts go out to you and your families because it can't be easy um, so Nikki and Ruth what do you what would your suggestions and advice be for them um, as they sort of look after themselves for, for, I imagine it's two weeks, isn't it, that they're going to have to put up with this? Mm -hmm. I think firstly is really um, listen to the guidelines. Yeah. Um, I think, yes, they're younger. Um, most of them, what was the, the number, 700, or almost mm -hmm. close to 800 of them? 800, yeah. I think it was 770. It's 800 now, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so even though you're asymptomatic, um, listen to the guidelines. Make sure that you are quarantining because... You know, it's not you who's being, a, you may not be experiencing it, but, you know, you can pass it on to someone else who yeah. will have symptoms and those symptoms could range from miles to severe. Yeah. So please follow the guidelines. Um, that would be my mm. absolute yeah. number one. And I, I think for me, you know, it's very much about saying, okay, this is, you know, it's, it's, it isn't fair. But then <laughs> as we get older, we realize life isn't fair. Mm. Um, so they, they're they going to have to just find a way to, to, to stay positive. And if that means that they spend all their time having, you know, Zoom meetings or social, you know, WhatsApp meetings between them, you know, that they could use the time to yeah. just spend some time catching up on some sleep. They yeah. have to be really kind of actually really quite looking after themselves. Exactly. So time self-care. And I think that the, the question they need to ask themselves, and this is a question I ask myself, you know, when I have my down moments about COVID, is what else is true? Yeah. And this for me is very much about saying, yeah, okay, what else is true is that, hey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's tough, but 
and mm. finding the little things to be grateful yeah. for. And, mm. and, it's, and the research, the neuroscience behind, you know, that, that, about feeling gratitude is such that we can't deny that the, the, the usefulness of thinking, what am I grateful for? Mm. Um, and I know there'll be some kids who just, oh, God, yeah, yeah, whatever. But actually, it's really, really important because if you recognize what you're grateful for, even in the darkest of times, yeah. that gives you the courage and the resilience to get up the following morning and do it all again. Yeah. Every and some, day, right? Um, three things that yeah, you're grateful for. Yeah. So it's a gratitude. And something else yeah. I've, I've, I've sort of thought, um, you know, continuously throughout all this is, um, thank heavens for the technology. I know we talk a lot about technology, about the good versus the bad, but imagine having to face a p- pandemic where we didn't have these the technology to connect one another. That social connection is so important for them yeah. because if they don't have those little points of contact, you know, if they're interacting with yeah. each other, then their moods and, and things can drastically change. So it's really important that they keep in touch with each other and as Ruth said that gratitude is so important yeah because almost in, all, 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 kind of almost in an inadverse way that you know it's always tough for, for students those those first few months you know a new environment getting to know your peers yeah. but what a what but what a way to do it to form this sort of solidarity that they've had to they've got this new shared experience so so use it harness it and then you can i'm very i'm encouraged to think that they would get through this together you know and then that that's the whole thing around this post adversarial growth i was talking about kind of it's almost like it's easy for us to say but it's almost a case of own this own this difficulty that you're in and and do something positive with it yeah. Um, yeah, it's there will be times when you will feel really rubbish about it. And do but, some yeah. mindfulness, I'm sure, and some yeah. some campus mindfulness or something like that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. so essential yeah. mindfulness, breathing, relaxation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Even little things like think I'm not. I, I'm I'm thinking of this because I was uh, watching a webinar today. But if you think of something that makes you happy, automatically it's just it's just it's just a parasympathetic. Um, system kicks in place so your shoulders drop and yeah. you breathe easier and you feel more relaxed just because you thought of your dog <laughs> or biohack. Yeah. it's called a biohack bio yeah yeah so even just smiling mm. even though you're feeling um absolutely miserable you just smile mm. it's a biohack because of the change in the muscles in your face or the facial muscles so that's the most muscles will ever engage is when you smile right and that will then send triggers to the brain that he's smiling and then mm. the brain's like oh she's smiling oh we've got to dump all the endorphins down mm. and the oxytocin down whoosh and it's called a biohack so there's right. so many things that you can do yeah um and louise yes. hay always talks about mm. she's an absolute favorite guru um she's passed but i've always used her work and she always talks about it's only a thought and a thought can be changed so whatever you're in whatever funk you're in or whatever you're thinking right now you know it's a thought and a thought can be changed. And one of the quickest ways to change it is just smile. Yes. Even though yeah. you're not feeling it internally, it's a biohack. So eventually bio, your chemistry starts to change yes. and you will be in an elevated state. Fabulous. Yeah. That is fabulous. And, and that is very EQ, by the way. I just need to, I feel the need to say this. This whole <laughs> thing about, you know, a thought is, you know, a thought can be changed. Mm-hmm. That is EQ in action. Yeah. If you can change how you are thinking, feeling and acting about a particular thing, then we'll be able to manage and cope this so much better. Awesome. Um, thank you very much, Nikki. Thank you very much, Ruth. Thank, thank you especially, Ruth, for joining us once again. It's been brilliant.
brilliant to to hear you and and hopefully you'll join us again in another future podcast i would love to absolutely yes Yes. i've had to to sit on my hands most of this because i I wanted to put in all the time Well, you know, like I say, we can release we can release an edit an edited version in future where we can just talk to the to the clouds come on that. So yeah. you know, as long as we want, because I'm sure of a lot of things we've just barely scratched the surface, haven't we? There's so much sort of underneath that needs that needs highlighting. Yeah, so um, awesome. Uh, just a quick uh, shout out, um, um, um Ruth. Do you, so do you want to do you want to sort of remind listeners about how they want to f- find out more about you, how to get in touch with okay. you? So um, the easiest way would be to Google C-E-L and T, or Children's Emotional Language and Thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's, we say children, but actually we do work with everybody, um, including those students who might be self-isolating. Just have a look and see what we do. Have a look at the EQ side of things and, and just email me anytime if there's anything that we can put in place to support you. Wonderful. And Nikki, a reminder of your details, please. So, Nikki Robertson, Holistic Wellbeing. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. Um, website is www.nikkirobertson.com. I've got some lovely classes on, mindfulness, relaxation classes. Mm-hmm. So, students jump on, um, yeah. especially for the nights where you're bored stuff. Fantastic to get some of those um, techniques in just to help. So, yeah. Easy to find. Yeah, I mean, I hope a lot of them have packed a yoga mat or something. That's something they could do in their rooms, isn't it? They don't even need a yoga mat. Do they not? Oh, well, you yeah. know, because my classes are all online. I've got people joining, sitting on a couch, sitting in their bed. Oh, I've there you go. Some people in their pajamas in bed already. <laughs> there you go. Right. Night, night. Anything, anything will do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. It's been a great podcast. This one. Um. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Nikki, as ever. And um. This rounds uh, rounds up episode twenty three uh, full hour, and um, will join us again for the following uh, episode twenty four. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.